You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. The argument that women are the weaker sex has been used throughout history as an explanation of everything from their inability to govern to mental health problems to why they can't play sport. And yet, according to a new book by research geneticist Sharon Moalem, those of us blessed with two X chromosomes are actually stronger than our genetic male counterparts. But you don't have to tell a mum that. Most heterosexual couples that go through childbirth will affirm that women are incredibly strong. How many partners have you seen post on social media about how amazing women are after childbirth? And yet the myth persists that women are physically weak, and this has an impact on the way we treat disease, among other things. Sharon's book is called The Better Half on the Genetic Superiority of Women. Hi, Sharon. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure. Now, what inspired this book? I think it really came down to my clinical and research experiences. I started off first taking care of elders at the far end of life. And, you know, when I would sit down and speak with my colleagues, when we tried to figure out why only 25% of the people alive were men over the age of 70, it always came back down to behavior. We were always taught and told men take more risks. Uh, You know, they drink more, they smoke more, they don't take care of their health. You know, things that are pretty logical and make a lot of sense. But for me, when I switched to taking care of young babies that were born premature in the neonatal intensive care unit, I started seeing exactly the same survival advantage that I saw at the far end of life. And when I spoke to a lot of the staff working with very young babies, they said the same thing. They said, you know, for 20, 30 years, they've known that they've seen this pattern over and over that girls, regardless of what challenges they face early on in life, always seem to do better than boys. And, um, you know, of course, this lacked a behavioral explanation because, uh, you know, the young babies in their incubators really weren't, weren't behaving like the older men, um, you know, over the life course. So we couldn't really blame that on behavior. And so as a geneticist, I also knew that, of course, every genetic female, chromosomal female inherits two X chromosomes, one from their mother and one from their father. And every male inherits just one X chromosome from their mother. And um, this was really striking for me to think about because for a very long time, we always thought that women only had really access to one X chromosome in their body. And as our genetic knowledge changed, we now know that every, every chromosomal female has two populations of cells using one X over the other. So what this means, actually, practically speaking, is that women have an extra 1,000 genes, because there's 1,000 genes on that X chromosome to use, and, it, and it's different versions of the same genes. And so what that means is that if uh, a female has to solve some type of, um, say, genetic problem or the need for another blueprint, when she's, if you think about it almost as a renovation when you're building the human body, um, if you want to build a room in a certain way, females, when it comes to the X chromosome, have two blueprints that they can dip into. And they can do this throughout their body. And this helps explaining why women and females are so much better at building complex organs such as the brain, because so many of the 1,000 genes that are on that X chromosome are involved in building and maintaining a brain and other really complex structures. So just the same pattern that you see when it comes to development. So if we think of congenital anomalies, you know, certain 
problems in, in the formation of the body that happens during fetal life. Uh, you vary some things that are very benign, such as webbed toes, for example. Feet are actually very difficult to feet and hands are difficult to make. We don't think about them. But um, developmentally, they start off as mittens and we lose the skin and tissue in between the fingers and they become, if you think about it, free and glo- like glove-like. And so a webbed toes or webbed fingers is when that process goes awry. And so that seems to happen more often, uh, the point about two to one in boys. Then tongue tie, uh, the same thing, two to one. Cleft lip, cleft palate, again, more common in boys. And when you look at other more serious malformations of the brain and other organs, it's the same pattern. And again, it comes back down to the fact that even before birth, females can dip into that genetic knowledge and use alternative pathways of development if they're stuck. And because boys and men only have one X chromosome, if there is an issue on that X, if you lack a certain blueprint to build a certain structure properly, then that's going to show up even before birth with some type of developmental problem. So does this have implications for fertility treatments? I know that we can't choose in certain countries and states, you cannot choose the sex of your child, but in some cases you can. Um, I have no idea what the what it is legally in other countries, but I know sometimes you can choose the sex of your baby if you're going through IVF treatment, for example. Would your research have an impact in that regard in terms of the survival of a male embryo versus a female embryo? Yes. So um, it's, it's interesting because, and this actually came out early on when IVF was being developed. So everything that I told you now makes it sound, uh, you know, and what I'm arguing really is that the sex that has the two, two of the same sex chromosomes is superior. It has an advantage. And just as a quick aside, it's not male, female in every species. In birds, it's actually the male that's genetically superior. The male has the equivalent to XX. It has ZZ chromosomes. But to answer your question, given the fact that every cell has these two X chromosomes, every one of the cells actually has to partially shut down one. And that's how you, when I was mentioning before, you end up with two populations. So in a woman, 50% of her cells are using the X from her father, 50% are using the X from their mother, and they're cooperating and working together. All of my cells have the same X. So from a developmental perspective, it's actually easier to make a boy, embryologically speaking, because all the cells are identical, they're all clones. A girl's cell, uh, female cells, have to shut down, partially shut down each one of those X chromosomes. And if that really complex genetic process doesn't go, go right, then um, those embryos, uh, it's thought anyways now that they're lost before a woman even knows she's pregnant. And how this has become apparent during IVF, many of the early embryos now we know that do really well and are selected for sometimes tend to be male. There's a little bit of skewing. And that actually matches the natural birth rate. So in countries where there isn't sex selection done, like termination of pregnancies based on sex, which is every other, every, almost every country except for, say, China and India, really, there is a skew towards boys. And this, is, this number is pretty solid. It's about 104 to 106 boys for every 100 girls. And the reason is it's because it's so difficult to make a female. And, but once you make a female, once she develops properly, so by about the 15th to 20th week of pregnancy, um, there is a very obvious survival advantage. And that's the same one that we were discussing before, the one that lasts throughout the entire life course. And does your research have uh, implications for 
treatment of things like autism or developmental delays. I know that in the interviews I've done about those kinds of things, it does seem that boys are always the ones that are more likely to experience developmental delays or be on the spectrum. I don't know if that is still true, but do you think your research can throw any light on those kinds of things? Yes. And so, so again, coming back to structures that are difficult to make, such as the, the human brain, to make and maintain, because so many of those genes are on the X chromosome, females have an advantage uh, just structurally. Even if you think about it from like an envi- if you're exposed to an environmental toxin, so if you have two populations of cells that are using different Xs, that allows for one population to stand in and take over if, if the other population using that X, that X is not compatible, say, with an environmental insult. And, and so even though currently we don't, we don't know all of the root causes for autism, we just know things that are associated with increased risk, by far it's, it's being an XY male. Originally, we used to think it was eight to one, boys to girls, and now with better diagnosis with, and finding a lot of the, of the girls that we would miss previously, it's down to about as low as 3.7 to 1. But still, that's a very big difference. And we really think that it, it has to do with the fact, and that's really what I'm proposing through my, my book, that having the use of this extra X chromosome to build such a complex structure gives girls an advantage. And, it, and it's part of the reason also why we really have to focus so much more now, I believe, to help boys because so many of the developmental delays we see and behavior issues actually have unorganic brain origin to them and having just relying on one x to build such a complex structure puts you at risk uh you know if again if you're exposed to you know an environmental insult if uh you didn't receive enough oxygen at birth all these things boys really don't do as well and we we really have to be spending a lot more time not just doing research but i i think on the diagnostic and therapeutic side really extending a lot of help to boys because really being being born with just one x is a disadvantage that we're only really now beginning to appreciate and like you said during your opener for so many years we thought um, that muscle mass really defined the stronger sex we thought that having immense upper body strength being able to throw further run faster is what defined physical strength and that's true but for not from a biological perspective from a biological perspective the cost that men have for being able to defend their families and their communities with, the, with that strength over the ages is uh, being more biologically fragile, having just that one X. And more than any other time in history, we're seeing that actually play out, of course, now with the COVID-19 pandemic, because not only are men more susceptible to, to the infection, they don't do well, even um, you know, in the ICU while they're sick, they don't have the biological stamina to keep going. And, and that's really where women, you know, shine when it comes to really overcoming all the challenges of life. And it's, and it's not just childbirth. It's really being able to provide in the first few years, uh, which is so demanding biologically for all mammalian mothers, because you're not just providing care, you're providing calories, you know, in the form of milk, of course. And so being able to survive and provide is really why our species kept surviving. 
I know you're a geneticist, so I'm not sure if this plays into the kind of research you do, but do you have any thoughts or perspective on the relationship between this biological strength and perhaps, for want of a better word, mental health? So women suffer anxiety at higher rates than men and uh, postnatal depression. And I know that that's a very complex question, but I'm wondering if you see anything from your research in terms of this biological strength and how it might interplay with mental health? Well, it's an interesting question because there was a, you know, a trend recently to start to think of the chromosomal male or biological male and female brains as being very similar. But the reality is that every cell has a sex. Every cell either has XX or XY, XX being female, XY being male. And what I was mentioning earlier is that because every organ in the body is made up of these two populations of cells, you could almost say that from a wiring perspective, that men's brains may be a little more simple because they're made up of, of neurons that are using um, the same XY. Now, this, this can work phenomenally well if all the genes on the X are functional and all the wiring work goes according to plan. But in females, you have a level of complexity that we really even haven't began to assess. And the reason is you're dealing with neurons that are using different Xs and working together in a cooperative way. And so female brains have this complexity that we really haven't been able to study because we really haven't had the tools. And we're only now beginning to understand that this mosaic nature, that, that women really are mosaics, different organs are made up of different percentages using different X's, and the same is reflected in the brain. And so the thinking is, could this lead to different issues regarding that affect mental health? And they must, because if there are these different populations of cells working in different ways, and then you overlay that, of course, with the hormonal changes that happen in life, especially to women. And we're not just talking about the sick, the regular estrous cycle, the regular cyclic cycle, but pregnancy, post-pregnancy, menopause, men don't have to, don't have such drastic changes. You know, of course, now we're thinking of andropause in the same very slight way, men later on in life, using androgens or the level, having lower levels of androgens. But females really experience this on a day-to-day basis. The hormone milieu that happens within a woman, within a woman is, is almost like a tightly tied orchestra. It's continuously changing. It ebbs and flows. And of course, hormones have a big effect on how the brain works and how cell function happens. And so it's not surprising then that women have this uh, additional challenge that they need to face and one that we haven't really considered. We've more or less overlooked and I, I think for many, for more re- in more recent times, expected women from a psychological or psychiatric perspective to be the same day-to-day and approach uh, certain situations just like men. But if we take just the simple fact that estrogens and, and progesterone levels change you know, week to week and month to month, year to year, that really changes our perspective of what happens within the, the, the female brain. And I think the, the issue is we've been looking at the female brain through the male lens, trying to understand the way female works with tools that we used uh, originally with men. And that's because most of the research that's been done, which forms the basis of modern medicine, has been done using male cells, male animals, and male test subjects. And part of the reason was 
we didn't want to ever endanger women. We, again, we thought men were the stronger sex biologically. So all the testing and the experimentation that was done was done on the male body. And so that left us with a, an understanding of uh, male physiology and male biology. And then we tried to apply that to the female. We actually then lost a lot of this nuance. We never even really expected this uh, idea that, they, just coming back to simple hormones, that that would actually change the function of the brain. So what are the implications of that, what you just mentioned there, that most medicines were tested on men? What are the implications of that for women's health overall, given this great disparity between how we're made up biologically? That, that means, actually, it's a really great question that you bring up. It's probably about a third to a, probably about a half of the drugs that we prescribe today that have uh, sex-dependent effects, so that work very differently in men and women. And if you think about, and this is what I try to bring up in the book to explain how complex drug function could be between men and women, is alcohol. Alcohol, of course, is a drug, and a man and a woman of the same weight and size um, drink uh, for drink, they have very different effects. And for many years, we thought that this was just size-based, and we tried to take that into account. But even alcohol, we know, uh, distributes in the body differently, it's metabolized differently. Women and women are much more sensitive to alcohol. Well, when it comes to other drugs, it's very similar. The way in which women break down drugs, some drugs are also hormonally dependent. So depending where you are in your cycle will change how uh, that drug behaves. That nuance hasn't even been considered because even now when, we, when most countries require uh, women in drug trials, there aren't enough men and women for us to know what that drug is doing in each sex. We just more or less know the effects that are happening. And the reason is that we're not including enough men and women. And so if we, if we really double the participants that we currently have, then doctors will have the knowledge that they need to be able to prescribe a different dose for a different sex if needed. And the, the example that I bring up occurred with Ambien, Zolpidem, which is a sleep aid. And when it was first developed, um, men and women actually took it in the clinical trials. And it was decided that when the drug was approved, that 10 milligrams was the dose for this drug. So you would take 10 milligrams at night, it would help you sleep. And that worked fine for men. And what happened after the drug was released, many women started going to their doctors and saying, you know that 10 milligrams of Zolpidem, Vampion that you prescribed for me, I took it and the next day I, I, was, I was sleepy. I was having trouble driving. I was having trouble focusing at work. And so drug agencies like the FDA in the US started receiving so many of these complaints that they realized they went back and they came to the conclusion that the drug actually is broken down in women's bodies much slower. And again, originally it was thought, oh wait, women are, are maybe are smaller, it's a size issue, and it's not. It's actually women's bodies break this drug down slower. And so the FDA revised the prescription amount for doctors and let them know and say, if you have a female patient, it's actually, you should start with five milligrams, not 10 milligrams. And so that, that's, that's an immense difference. It's not slight. It's not you know, five or 10%. It's half the dose that men are taking. And so how many other drugs that we are prescribing to women currently fall into that category? We don't know. Um, what we do know, though, is that it's much more likely for uh, women to be unintentionally overdosed for almost all the drugs that we have, unintentionally, of course. And it comes down to the fact, again, that women are much more sensitive. But if we've done all our drug trials predominantly using men or not using enough women to give us the power to know how to give a sex-specific dose, we're actually prescribing blind. 
And so uh, what we really need to do is require every new drug to have a sex-specific dose requirement. And so that require, would require the pharmaceutical companies to figure out, is it the same dose? Let's just start by saying, is it the same dose for men and women? If not, are there any other hormonal effects? So if a woman is premenopausal or menopausal, does the dose change as well? And so you know, what we're really going to be seeing, I think, in the future is every time that you would be getting a script from your doctor, hopefully, and I mean, that's my hope as well, is that, that sex will finally be taken into account. Well, there's so much to think about there, Sharon. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. That's Sharon Maulem. He's a research geneticist who has worked in pediatric medicine and he's the author of The Better Half on the Genetic Superiority of Women. And we'll put links to where you can find a copy in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.